You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, today you were going to introduce us to the idea of Markov Chain Monte Carlo. That's right, yeah, or MCMC as we call it. So uh, MCMC comes up in both statistics and machine learning as a way to do inference. And what it really basically is 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 a way to do numeric integration. And um, integration is something that comes up quite often in machine learning, particularly when we're dealing with Bayesian models for data. So uh, just to sort of remind you, the idea with a a Bayesian model in machine learning or statistics is that we write down some joint distribution between, say, stuff we can see in the world, the the data that we can observe, and some properties of the data that that we want to understand. And then the idea is that we can use conditional probability and, um, and reason about the things we can't see given the things that we can see. And ideally, we would marginalize away maybe things that we can't see but that we don't care about mm-hmm. along the way. And, and this comes up in a lot of different things. So like LDA, maybe we don't care. That, that is latent Dirichlet allocation. Maybe we don't care about something like you know what the particular word is, what the particular topic is assigned to one word in some document. What we want to know is what's going on in the, kind of the corpus overall, integrating out the specific assignments. Same kind of thing comes up in mixture models and hidden Markov models and, and lots of things. Marginalization is something we do we do a lot of. Unfortunately, marginalization really that corresponds to either summing out some big state state space or um, or integrating over a big state space. And in general, integration is something that's hard to do. I like to sort of divide a lot of the computations that we do in machine learning and statistics into kind of two categories. One is something like finding the best configuration that we frame in terms of optimization. And the other is integrating out different possible configurations and looking at many different hypotheses. And that's what marginalization or integration is about. So, uh, so there's different ways that we can tackle this. Sometimes, in a few models, it turns out that you can do marginalization exactly using something like dynamic programming. And so you can kind of propagate information on a graph and come up with uh, and do something that's like a, a hard sum or a hard integral. Um, and then, but more often, you have complicated data and complicated models and you need to do something fancier. And, um, and so this leads to the area known as approximate inference. And there's quite a few different ways to think about to to think about this, um, but overall, there's kind of maybe two dominating approaches that you'd see if you looked at a paper in kind of NIPS or ICML or kind of a major venue. You would see ideas called variational inference, which try to come up with a uh, with an approximating distribution. And later this episode, we're going to talk to Dave Bly, and he's one of the one of the, the big innovators in the space of thinking about variational inference. And then there's something that I work on a little bit more, which is this idea of Markov chain Monte Carlo. Now, the idea with MCMC is that um, what we're trying to do is, is ask questions about the data, and we can often write these questions as expectations under distributions. And the idea of Monte Carlo is that we can use samples from a distribution and compute their averages, and those give us estimates of these expectations we want to compute. So it turns out that many questions that we want to ask about data can be framed in these terms. The problem is is that, that in addition to integration being hard, often drawing samples from distributions is hard. And the idea of Markov chain Monte Carlo, it's this amazing kind of idea, which is that we can kind of define a random walk in terms of some simpler, like where the kind of the steps in the random walk are quite simple and have a kind of a small set of rules and uh, such that we can write an algorithm to simulate the random walk. And the idea is that as we run this random walk forward using random numbers on our computer, that it will converge to uh, a sample from this possibly very complicated distribution. And this is pretty cool because it's kind of composing together simpler things that we know how to handle to, to deal with some really complicated numeric 
computation that we want to do. Um, and so it's, it's a pretty amazing algorithm. It, it dates back a long time. Uh, but one of the big advances was the, the development of what we call the Metropolis-Hastings algorithm. And uh, it was actually developed kind of surrounding like the Manhattan Project and, and things oh, wow. like that. So it connects with kind of cool ideas in physics and, and other areas. Um, but at the end of the day, what it boils down to, again, is this idea that what you're going to do is kind of define a, a random walk in some space and let it wander around. And there's a few properties that are kind of technical that it winds up uh, needing to satisfy. But these algorithms, I think, are, are kind of among the most important algorithms of, the, of kind of the last, you know, the last century uh, in terms of actually leading to interesting scientific insights. So this is an active area of research. MCMC, in some ways, is kind of the gold standard for performing statistical inference and the hardest problems in statistics and physics and, and machine learning. Um, but often it's, it's challenging and slow, and, and, uh, and so it's something we are all still working hard to try to figure out how to make faster and take advantage of, of big parallel, parallel computing systems and so on. Excellent. And we'll have a couple of papers about it up on our website, thetalkingmachines.com, so you can learn more. This week's listener question is about the edge of creativity in machine learning. Hi, I'm Pao, and I'm a PhD student working with Gustav Gaios on human-computer interaction. Um, my research topic is on creativity, and right now we have a problems that we are working on that we are wondering how machine learning can be helpful. So we have a bunch of ideas that people generated, right? But they are short, and they are in text, and they had on, and we don't have that much information about these ideas. But we want to be be able to detect the patterns and to be um and give inspirations to people. So we wonder how we can use machine learning to solve this problem. Thanks for the question, Pao. So I'm going to take your question to be, how can we use machine learning to help people be creative? And this is in contrast to some things we've talked about before about trying to build machine learning algorithms that can themselves be creative. Here, I think we're talking about how do you enable people? And this is really, in some ways, like what machine learning is is all about like how do we make intelligent tools to help people accomplish the goals that they want now i don't claim to have a kind of understanding of of you know real definitions of what creativity is and i think there are people who study creativity and understand this in a in a very formal way but when i think of creativity i think of of trying to have an understanding of where the bounds between the things that are sort of regular and well understood and uh, are relative to new areas that we haven't explored yet, whether we're talking about new kinds of art or new kinds of engineering designs, you know, or new kinds of music, the uh, there's a kind of a boundary that creative people are pushing. And the question is, how do we build tools? And how do we learn from data in a way that helps people push that boundary and helps people identify exactly where that boundary is? And it's challenging because, of course, taking really huge leaps is is hard, not just for, you know, will be hard for both humans and machines. And so the question is kind of what are the regions that are unexplored but are still somehow familiar, right? This is the kind of maybe the kind of art, the kind of architecture and so on that resonates with us where it's something that we can understand, but it's nevertheless novel. And what we might hope to be able to do with machine learning is build tools for uh, exploratory data analysis and for 
um, finding kind of maybe low dimensional structure or groups or patterns that would be difficult to to identify by eye uh, or or maybe can only be typically identified by eye by the sort of the most talented people. So what we might hope to be able to do is make interfaces using machine learning that helps a broader set of people create interesting creative artifacts and maybe also helps the, the most talented people create the most interesting creative artifacts. So I'm optimistic that with better visualization and better representations of data that, that we can help people be creative. You know, ultimately what it's going to be is not the tool being creative, but making it so that uh, you can sort of click fewer times on the screen to understand, you know, to come up with a new idea or look for inspiration in, uh, in the right places in order to come up with a new design rather than, uh, you know, having to come up with some new idea for whether it's a logo or a website or a building uh, or some new widget rather than having to look Rather than having to sort of look deep within your soul, then perhaps you can... you can um, Bringing inspiration closer to hand. Exactly. You can find that inspiration more readily um, if a system and if a tool for you can help put it in front of you. Thanks for the question, pal. If you have a question for us, you can reach us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter, T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. So this week's guest on Talking Machines is David Bly of Columbia. Yeah, Dave is really fantastic. In addition to being one of the nicest people in the entire field, he's, of course, very famous for his work in topic modeling and mm-hmm. late nursery allocation in particular. Although I think personally that that, that kind of uh, underrepresents the, the interesting range of things that Dave is into. In particular, some of his recent work on stochastic variational inference, I think is really awesome. When we sat down with Dave, we asked him the question that we ask everybody first, how did you get where you are? I was an undergrad at Brown, and uh, I got interested in AI when I was there. With um, I had a great thesis advisor at Brown named Leslie Kailblink. She's now at MIT, mm-hmm. and um, you know she's a really amazing, inspiring uh, person. And I got interested in academic computer science through her, um, and through other people at Brown. Um, <laughs> and uh, then. I um, went to a job at SRI International, which was a research institute, an artificial intelligence research institute in Menlo Park, so I moved to California. And um, I was there, and like maybe two years into that job, and that's that's also where Leslie worked when she was getting her PhD. Mm-hmm. Two years into that job, Leslie emailed me and said, you should maybe think about applying to grad school. Oh, so then, <laughs> come back, what are yep. you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so I applied to uh, grad school and um, got into Berkeley and loved it and um uh when went to berkeley for graduate school this was in the late 90s so i worked with um mike jordan at berkeley uh he's a a very prominent scholar in machine learning and statistics and um that time period in mike's lab uh was very special there was a group of us and we all kind of became close both as friends and also intellectually close I got involved in developing probability models and applying them to large data sets, especially things like digital media, um, like text and images. Um, I mostly worked on text when I was in graduate school. And um, in Mike's group, we just, you know, we were always 
learning a lot and studying papers and and um, uh, the field of machine learning was really kind of blossoming for us there and for me personally in in that time in graduate school. Then. After grad school, I did a postdoc with another uh, person, with John Lafferty. Mm-hmm. He was at CMU at the time. Now he's at the University of Chicago. And um, he's a very uh, an amazing person, too. He um, did a lot of work in early work in statistical text analysis. Mm-hmm. So in text, which is a big part of my research, you know, there was this shift, the way I see it anyway, um, in the 90s, moving from thinking about text in terms of linguistic structures and what we know about language to thinking about text like data um, and understanding text as data. Yeah. Now, now I think scholars try to look at the combination. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, John Lafferty did some of the early work as one of the um, founders of this revolution in text analysis to think about it statistically. And yeah, so I did a postdoc with him, which was great. Um, and then after Carnegie Mellon, I was there for like a year and a half, for two years. I went to Princeton for um, eight years, which was a wonderful time. Uh, the Princeton Computer Science Department's really an amazing place. Um, and have had fantastic students and postdocs there. And then recently moved to Columbia, um, partly to... Uh, be a part of their data science institute. So, you know, I've always been working at the intersection of computer science and statistics, and in some ways it seems like one possible definition for data science right now is the intersection of computer science and statistics. And Columbia has a a real university-wide commitment to developing this discipline in this field with this wonderful institute that they've that they've created. Um, And so at Columbia, I'm part of the data science institute, and I'm... um, uh, one of the one of my roles there is to try to develop a is to develop a PhD program in data science. Oh, which fantastic! Really, I'm I'm excited about understanding how to define data science and defining it to be a real discipline with a with a tradition and with um, the kind of academic and intellectual backbone that other fields like computer science and statistics have. Um, and through a PhD program, it's a really great way to to be able to do that. And then also at Columbia, I'm now a joint appointment in both computer science and statistics. Hmm. So it's exciting to be a bridge between them, but also now to have statistics colleagues that I can learn from. So talk to me a little bit more about the PhD program. How do you, how do you develop an entire PhD program when the field is, is evolving, you know, looks different at the beginning of one year than it did from the end of the next? You're right. That's like the big challenge is, you know, here's this thing. It's new and um, it's really undefined. We're mm-hmm. defining it through things like Ph.D. programs right. and institutes. Um, and so we have to ask these foundational questions about what is this science, this new discipline? What does it mean? Um, so I'm not totally sure what it looks like yet. I don't think anybody is. Um, but something that I'm really interested in focusing on at Columbia, in Columbia's PhD program, is data science is about developing the tools and the methodology that helps scientists, scholars, technology industry, anybody with data Mm -hmm. do something that to help understand their data or form a prediction about their data or summarize their data. Um, Now, that looks a lot like statistics. That's mm. those are the original goals of statistics, of course. And so I think one um, 
something we all have to think about is what is the relationship between data science and statistics? What is the relationship between data science and computer science? Um, but anyway, I think at its core, there's this interdisciplinary idea that we're building a methodology that's going to help scientists, um, say, uh, understand what the what their data are saying, say, about the world. And um, we want to do that at scale, right? We want to do that with massive data sets. That's different from statistics' traditional goals. Yeah. Um, and uh, we want to think about computation, right? We want to think about what are the algorithmic and computational problems involved as well as the conceptual and philosophical and statistical problems that are involved. So that's one of the themes that I want to bring out in the PhD program. But how it looks specifically, this is a big challenge as things are changing, you're right. And it's going to have to be flexible. But computer science is like that. And computer science, when computer science was born, it was also not defined. And um, it turned into a beautiful field. So you work with um, text and images. Do you feel like you have to approach it, even though you're coming from a machine learning point of view, from sort of a different standpoint or think about your problems a little bit differently than someone who's in biochemistry or trying to solve problems with tumors or something? Mm -hmm. A lot of my work has been about this field called topic models. And topic models are a, a, a class of algorithms or, or a type of algorithm that ingests big collections of texts and learns how it learns the kinds of salient themes that live in those texts. So you can imagine you ingest a hundred thousand articles from the New York Times, and you want to learn. The algorithm learns that these articles talk about different things. Some are health-related, some are sports-related, some are about national politics, and you learn these without knowing in advance that those categories exist. Mm -hmm. Then you, then you, um, then the algorithm represents each document according to those themes that it learned, and that gives you a window or a lever into navigating or summarizing or, um, or searching or forming predictions about what you might see in the future. Um, and you're right that that's really different from the usual, although from the usual scientific problem, although less different than you might think. Hmm. So it's a it's it, with text there is this natural exploratory goal. I want to understand what's in these hundred thousand articles, and I need to do it quickly. Or if I'm a scholar, I I just you know I'm a historian. I just got declassified ten million cables from the seventies. I work with someone named Matt Connolly at Columbia who has this problem. Wow. He, they have a million cables from the seventies about foreign relations, and they want to use that big corpus to understand what happened in history. Mm -hmm. Um, in the past, historians would sift through the cables, maybe use keyword search if it's a little more sophisticated, to find things that are interesting or that help them answer the kinds of historical questions they want to answer. Um, but with models and with algorithms like topic modeling, you can get these high-level summaries, including structured summaries and, and more complicated summaries of what's going on there, and you can use that to guide how you do your close readings, how you explore the corpus. Um, so there's this fundamentally exploratory approach to thinking about data that pops up a lot in the humanities. When you use computers to do humanities research, it's called the digital humanities. Uh, in the digital humanities, topic modeling has played a big role lately. Mm -hmm. In sciences, classically, our problems were about understanding the truth about the world through some kind of carefully curated data set. Mm -hmm. right? So I'm a scientist. I go out and... 
I, first I think about how to design an experiment that helps me answer or provide evidence for some kind of hypothesis that I have about the world. And statistics or machine learning plays a role when, really statistics, plays a role when I've done my experiment that I designed carefully with the statistics in mind, and then it's time to decide whether or not something is true about the world from that experiment. Right. So in that sense, it's very different from the digital humanities where you just find a bunch of speeches um, through history and you want to understand what's going on in those speeches and do a close reading and form some theories or just have some insights. Mm -hmm. But science nowadays has two modes. There is this traditional mode of mm -hmm. experimental design and try to understand the world from the carefully designed experiment, experimental design, data collection, and then statistics. But there's this other mode now, which is that I've just found a bunch of data. Right. Or I have a bunch of data, and it, I didn't carefully collect it. Intuition says it should say something about the world, right? So a, a good example um, are hospital records, right? You know, drugs are approved through careful trials. Right. They should be. Yeah. Um, but on top of that, all around the country, doctors are giving drugs to patients and observing their response. And mm -hmm. so there's this sea of um, data about what happened when some person took some drug. Mm -hmm. In the traditional statistical paradigm, you can't use that data. That's observational data. You can't right. draw any conclusions from it. Um, but it seems like it should be useful for understanding hypotheses, for maybe even finding some evidence for some kind of conclusion. And that's not that dissimilar from the digital humanities, getting a bunch of patient records and trying to navigate it and understand what, what should I test next? What drug might have a side effect that's positive that I didn't know about? And is that in the data? That's similar to what, what happened in the 70s between foreign relation offices right. in the sense of I just found this big pile of data just like I found the big pile of cables and I want to find something interesting in it to help me forward science or forward historical understanding of, of the world. The distinction I make is really between the prediction and making causal inferences from experimental data to exploring data through, um, you know, exploring large collections of data that I happen to find, large collections of observational data. Yeah, opening a quantitative door to observational data. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. That's really fantastic. Yeah. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the model that you developed, um, LDA. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to pronounce the name correctly, so I'm going to leave that up to you. Can you describe Can you describe the model? Sure. It stands for latent Dirichlet allocation. It's a very uncool title for a model, <laughs> uncool name. Um, but its original name was something like Model 3. <laughs> three models. A little more generic. <laughs> there might have been four models. We one. never got to Model 4. <laughs> it was Model 3. Um, yeah, so LDA is uh, kind of the simplest topic model. I talked a little bit about topic models. Mm -hmm. It's the simplest topic model. And uh, for me, it was the first probability model that I worked on um, uh, in depth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, in fact, I've worked on LDA for like more than 10 years. Um, and the idea is really simple. We talked about it already before. The idea is to ingest a bunch of articles mm -hmm. and understand what they're about mm -hmm. through a probability model, through a statistical model. And one way to understand statistical models is through the imaginary process 
by which they think the data came about. Mm -hmm. um, and that includes the imaginary hidden structures and artifacts that are involved in creating the data. So in LDA, it starts with this assumption that if you have a big collection of documents, there are going to be some topics in those documents, right? Some subjects, some themes that are discussed. And also, each document is going to exhibit those themes to different degree. Mm -hmm. But each document could exhibit multiple themes. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a distinction from traditional analyses like, like clustering analysis, which tries to group things. Right? Right. In a traditional clustering model, you get a, bu a bunch of data, say documents, and the goal is to group them into different, into different groups. Mm -hmm. With LDA, the idea is that there are these groups out there, but each, each data point, each document can exhibit those groups, but with different degrees. Mm -hmm. So an article could be about sports and business. Another article could be about national politics and economics. So the assumption is that there are these topics out there, and we and each document represents some combination of those topics. Um, and LDA as a model is very simple. It says this: to generate a document, what I do is I first choose which topics it's going to be about. All right. So say I chose sports and business, mm -hmm. and then for each word in the document, I choose one of those topics, say the sports topic, and then I look at what words are about sports, and I choose a sports word, baseball, whatever. Yeah. Um, sometimes I choose sports, sometimes I choose business for this particular article, and then what I get is a document, it's a collection of words, some of them are about sports, some of them are about business, and that's the way LDA thinks that the news really happened. Mm -hmm. Okay, now it's silly because, of course, the order of the words doesn't matter, what you get are these jumbles of words, um, but for understanding what an article is about, if I showed you a, a New York Times article about a baseball game, but I jumbled all the words up, and you looked at it, you wouldn't know what it was about exactly, but you would be able to tell it was about baseball. You'd right. see words like base and whatever ball. other baseball words. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> um, base and ball. And um, so that's the idea. That's how LDA thinks that documents rise. Now, the, you get a new document, another article. The same population of topics are at play, mm -hmm. right? Sports, business, health, whatever. Mm -hmm. But now it's going to be about a different combination. This one might right. be about sports and business instead mm -hmm. of sports and health. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to get some of those same sports words, but now you're going to get business words mixed in. So that's one way to describe statistical models. Actually, many statistical models, most statistical models, can be described that way by telling a story about what they say the data came, where they say the data came from. Right. And in that story, you can see there were these there were these pieces that we didn't get to observe, like which topics an article is about mm -hmm. and what the topics are themselves. The idea is that we just get a big stack of articles and there's all this hidden structure that's that's under the surface, but we don't get to observe it. Right. So the algorithmic problem, the statistical problem, the machine learning problem, is to take the documents and figure out what is the most likely topical structure that generated these documents. Mm -hmm. And that's what LDA does. Hmm. Um, I mean, LDA really describes the model, those assumptions I just described, and then there's many algorithms for taking those assumptions and reversing them, taking a big collection of documents and learning what the topics are. And so you give it 100,000 New York Times articles, you'll get one set of topics. You give it 100,000 articles from Science Magazine, you get another kind of top set of topics. Right. Um, for me, LDA was really a way to learn about modeling data with probabilities. Hmm. 
LDA is like a case study. Topic models are a case study in analyzing text with statistical models. And what's nice is that you can separate. So what I'm really interested in now is this idea of probability models as giving us a very clean methodology for customized data analysis. Mm -hmm. I'll explain what I mean a little bit. Um, you can take those assumptions that I described and you can change them to suit your problem. So let's say you don't have just a big bag of articles, say from last year, but you have all of the New York Times from its beginning in 18-whatever until the present. Yeah. You might not want to imagine that the same set of topics were at play in 1850 as are at play in 2010. Um, but rather that the topics slowly change over time. Mm -hmm. So that's an embellishment to that model I described, and you can make up the, the statistical story to capture that embellishment, and then do inference again. Oh, sorry, the, this reversing the process is called inference. Then uh, try to reverse the process again, this time not finding the static set of topics, but rather finding these dynamic topics mm -hmm. that, um, that change over time. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an idea called dynamic topic modeling that I worked on in my postdoc. But the bigger story is that the kind of structure you want to find, you can encode it in a probability model, and then separate from that, solve the statistics problem right. of reversing the generative process. And it cleanly separates. When I said it gives you a clean methodology, what I meant is that it cleanly separates the activities that we do when we solve problems with data. One is, what assumptions do I want to make about the data? What hidden structures live in the data that I want to uncover? You know, the hidden structures that are useful for the historian might be different than the hidden structures that are useful for somebody at the New York Times who wants to build a recommendation system. Right. What do I want to uncover here? And how do the how do how do, do those structures interact to create the things that I finally observe the mm -hmm. documents themselves? Um, then once you've decided that, you have a com computational problem. All right, I've set up my model. Now I want to infer. I want to reverse the generative process and figure out what those structures are. And once you've done that, then you have the problem of okay, I've I've learned the hidden structures. How do I use them to do whatever it is I'm trying to do. I mm -hmm. want to build a navigator of the New York Times. How do I do that, given that I've learned the topics and I know how documents represent them? Or I want to um, test a hypothesis about uh, something that happened in history in the 70s during the Vietnam War. How right. do I take the hidden structure I learned and turn it into something that sort of looks like testing or anyway um, suggesting a hypothesis about what might have happened? So those mm -hmm. are all different activities. And when I collaborate with scientists and scholars on solving problems with their data, um, you know, the first activity, understanding the assumptions, we do that together right. on my board, right? So, um, you know, Matt Connolly will tell me all about his data. There are these cables. They, they uh, are sent from one country to another from the, the uh, what are they called? The... Um, the foreign offices. The foreign right? offices, yes. Yeah. Uh, from one foreign office to the other. Um, and so there's this network, and there's time series, and there's all this stuff. And then here are the historical assumptions he wants to make about how those cables come about. Mm -hmm. And here's what he can't observe. And what right. he would love is to be able to infer all that from the cables themselves. And so then Matt Connolly goes away, mm -hmm. and I work with my group on solving the inference problem, on mm -hmm. solving the problem of how do I uncover this hidden structure. And then we call Matt Connolly back and say, okay, now we've found this hidden structure, what should we do with it? And so it's, it separates that nicely where there is this core, core piece of it, which is inference, that is computational. And these pieces on either end of it, which are collaborative, mm -hmm. understanding the data, understanding where it comes from. And that's, you know, back to the PhD program, that's why I really want this PhD program to have it at its root 
the idea that data science is interdisciplinary mm -hmm. because to create useful tools, we need to be working with the people that have real problems with data rather than right. imagining what problems one might have with data and right. solving those problems. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it also speaks to what you might do with it, with this inference problem, with the computational problem, which is trying to make that problem generic. So hmm. it used to be in the 90s and the 2000s, like in the LDA paper, that um, we'd come up with a model, and yep. then we'd work really hard to develop the algorithm for that model. Mm -hmm. Every algorithm was specific Unique. to a particular yeah. model. Yeah. And, but when you work with scientists, there's, there's a class of models you want to explore. Mm -hmm. They come up with one model, and then they might, you might change the model, or you might see that one model doesn't work the way you thought it would, so you want to change it. Right. And if it's hard work every time you change your model to change the inference algorithm, then that really dissuades you from, from trying, something trying new yeah. models. Yeah. Um, but with generic inference algorithms, which is what my group and many other groups have been working on lately, um, it lets us have kind of a loop where we make up a model, do inference on that model, see where it goes right and wrong, mm -hmm. adjust the model, mm -hmm. repeat, and, and go back and forth that way. But you need inference to be generic, otherwise you end up, uh, you know, it takes too long and you, you won't do it. Right. You get married to your model. That's one piece of the computational side that's important. And the other piece is that inference scale. Mm -hmm. that now astronomers like David Hogg at NYU, he has these terabytes of astronomy data and he wants to fit complicated probability models to them. Right. Um, that requires that being able to do these kinds of statistical computations with massive data sets. And that hasn't been a focus of the field of statistics or Bayesian statistics either, which is where these models often come from. Um, uh, and so that's something else we've been working on, how to scale up. Uh, these kinds of algorithmic problems and computational problems to mm -hmm. large data sets, as well as just stretching probability models to new areas, working with people like Matt Connolly or, or English scholars like Matt Jockers on understanding what kinds of problems they want to solve with their archives of texts, or working with, I work with a geneticist, John Story, he's a statistician and a geneticist, on solving problems with, with big uh, collections of human genomes, mm -hmm. understanding what kinds of problems they have so that we can find useful solutions and push our field in ways that make sense. Dave Bly of Columbia, and I'm really excited to see how the, the department that he's working on starting develops. Yeah, it's a really exciting development there at Columbia. So that's it for us this week here on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Join us next time. Mm -hmm.